uh, you are one for statistics. And if you are a Christian, then you perhaps receive the bulletins that come from Christian research. One of their recent reports was intriguingly titled, Pulling Out of the Nose Dive, dated September 18, 2006. It chronicles how among English churches, and no doubt with some parallels here, the well-known decline in church attendance is slowing. So did you know that actually a third of English churches are growing today? 34%, up from 21% before the turn of the millennium. 16% are considered stable, up from 14%. And 50% are declining, which is still a very high figure, but compared with 65% just before the year 2000. And therefore, the conclusion of the report was that in terms of church attendance, we are pulling up, we are pulling out of this nosedive. And it maybe feels encouraging. I was a little encouraged, at least, with all the bad news that we usually hear about the church. And yet, and yet I would like to suggest to you this morning that we should pause for caution. Pause for caution. Because we may feel just like many did in the day of the prophet Jeremiah. Two and a half thousand years ago when he began his ministry. Because as we've seen in our Jeremiah studies, Living in Hope, the early part of Jeremiah's ministry was during the reign of a king named Josiah. And he was a good king. He was a godly king. And he was apparently turning the tide. Israel, which had been awash with idolatry and God-forsaken behavior, was now immersed in a series of reforms. People were, so to speak, returning to church. And it is a sobering thought, especially if there are parallels to the church today, that despite appearances, they were wrong. Despite the external religion and the revival of it, in the hearts of the people, it was stone. They hadn't turned from idols back to the true and living God. And therefore... We will discover today in Jeremiah chapters 4 through 6, as we scan them briefly, that God will not be mocked. He is a God of justice. Judgment is at hand even for the people of God. Impending judgment is the title I've given to this sermon. And the question is that I've been asking, and I want you to ponder this morning is, how do we live? In such days, how do we respond in days of judgment? So let's read, let's read together. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 4. We're going to focus this morning on 
Jeremiah chapters 4 and 5 mainly. And then we'll just touch very briefly at the end on chapter 6. It's page 759 in the Pew Bibles. And a little health warning. This is heavy. Okay? But if you hang in there, there's a silver lining. It's coming. It's very near the end of the sermon, but it's coming. So just a few selections. Chapter 4, beginning at verse 5. Announce in Judah and proclaim in Jerusalem and say, Sound the trumpet throughout the land. Cry aloud and say, Gather together. Let us flee to the fortified cities. Raise the signal to go to Zion. Flee for safety without delay. For I am bringing disaster from the north, even terrible destruction. A lion has come out of his lair. A destroyer of nations has set out. He has left his place to lay waste your land. Your towns will lie in ruins without inhabitant. So put on sackcloth, lament and wail, for the fierce anger of the Lord has not turned away from us. In that day, declares the Lord, the king and the officials will lose heart. The priests will be horrified and the prophets will be appalled. Then I said... Ah, sovereign Lord, how completely you have deceived this people and Jerusalem by saying you will have peace when the sword is at our throats. At this time, this people and Jerusalem will be told a scorching wind from the barren heights in the desert blows towards my people, but not to winnow or cleanse. A wind too strong for that comes from me. Now I pronounce my judgments against them. Look, he advances like the clouds. His chariots come like a whirlwind. His horses are swifter than eagles. Woe to us, we are ruined. O Jerusalem, wash the evil from your hearts and be saved. How long will you harbor wicked thoughts? A voice is announcing from Dan, proclaiming disaster from the hills of Ephraim. Tell this to the nations, proclaim it to Jerusalem. A besieging army is coming from a distant land, raising a war cry against the cities of Judah. They surround her like men guarding a field, because she has rebelled against me, declares the Lord. Your own conduct and actions have brought this upon you. This is your punishment. How bitter it is, how it pierces to the heart. Oh, my anguish, my anguish, I writhe in pain. Oh, the agony of my heart, my heart pounds within me. I cannot keep silent, for I have heard the sound of the trumpet. I have heard the battle cry. Disaster follows disaster. The whole land lies in ruins. In an instant, my tents are destroyed, my shelter in a moment. How long must I see the battle standard? And hear the sound of the trumpet. And then we'll skip down to chapter 5, verse 1. The Lord is speaking. Go up and down the streets of Jerusalem. Look around and consider. Search through her squares. If you can find but one person who deals honestly and seeks the truth, I will forgive this city. Although they say, as surely as the Lord lives, still they are swearing falsely. O Lord, do not your eyes look for truth, 
You struck them, but they felt no pain. You crushed them, but they refused correction. They made their faces harder than stone and refused to repent. I thought, these are only the poor. They are foolish, for they do not know the way of the Lord, the requirements of their God. So I will go to the leaders and speak to them. Surely they know the way of the Lord, the requirements of their God. But with one accord, they too had broken off the yoke and torn off the bonds. And then over to chapter 6, just for a very important verse. Verse 16, chapter 6, verse 16. This is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it. And you will find rest for your souls. But you said, we will not walk in it. Now the basic point of... Jeremiah chapters three, uh, 4 through 6 is not difficult to determine. You only need to read the section headings in order to grasp the critical point. That God's judgment is at hand. That its arrival is sure. It is imminent. And so while these are difficult passages for any preacher to expound because of their hard-hitting nature, they are not fundamentally difficult to grasp. God's judgment is coming on his people. And the question follows, how do we respond? How do we respond in this situation? How did Jeremiah, the prophet of God, react And I'd like to focus on this this morning, that in chapters 4 and 5, we find Jeremiah responding in two main ways to this crisis. So, first of all, in chapter 4, we find that he is lamenting over a bad city. Uh, It's a wonderful thing if uh, some disaster you anticipate is going to come upon you, and at the last minute, it's averted. I remember some years ago, we went on a holiday trip to Florida in the United States, and it was just after one of the big hurricanes. I think it was Hurricane Andrew. And for about a month or so, the uh, residents of Orlando had been promised again and again that this hurricane was heading slowly in their direction, right into their path. But at the very last minute, it had went north up the coast. And they were very thankful, very relieved that judgment was averted, or at least that difficult situation. And this is probably how Israel might have felt at this point. And yet from verse 5 of chapter 4 onwards, it is clear that despite Josiah's current reforms and the seeming upturn in Judah's religious commitments, notwithstanding the call to repent that we considered in the previous section, It will be to no avail. The Lord announces disaster from the north in verse 6. In fact, strictly speaking, he continues to announce it. Because you recall that in chapter 1, God has already introduced this frightening prospect. 
Remember the tilting boiling pot? Full of hot, dangerous content, ready to pour itself southward, sweeping away all in its path. And now in chapter 4, the terrifying images continue, but they take a different form. First, the devouring lion in verses 6 and 7. I'm bringing disaster from the north, even terrible destruction. A lion has come out of its lair. A destroyer of nations has set out. Or to change the image again, verse 11, the scorching wind. A scorching wind from the barren heights in the desert blows towards my people, but not to winnow and cleanse. A wind too strong, for it comes from me. Terrifying images. And so no wonder this section begins with a call to flee. Announce in Judah, proclaim in Jerusalem and say, sound the trumpet throughout the land. Cry aloud and say, gather together, let us flee to the fortified cities. If the boiling pot is tilting, if the lion is on the prowl, if the scorching wind that burns our face, if it's hurtling southward, gather together, get inside, flee into the city. And it is because, as the Lord now moves from figurative language to literal language, a mighty army is coming. That's what these images depict. It's it's an army. Tell this to the nations, verse 16. Proclaim it to Jerusalem. A besieging army is coming from a distant land, raising a war cry against the cities of Judah. Something which would be fulfilled later in the Babylonian invasion under King Nebuchadnezzar. But if this is the physical threat, it's actually not the worst of Israel's worries. It's not the whole story. Because actually underlying this, says the Lord, there is a spiritual invasion, so to speak. As Babylon's armies march along the ground, the Lord of heaven leads the charge from the air. Look, verse 13, he advances like the the clouds. His chariots come like a whirlwind. His horses are swifter than eagles. It's because the fierce anger of the Lord, verse 8, has not turned away from us. Because God, as we've seen over previous weeks, has warned and warned his people. He has pleaded time and time again that his bride, whom he loves, should return from her adultery. But she will not. And now we will see that this God is not only a God of love, he is a God of justice. Terrifying justice. Uh, Just this week I I read a news report uh, about a doomsday vault. Did you read about this? This is being prepared to be built by the Norwegian government near the North Pole at the cost of two and a half million pounds. And you think our government sometimes wastes money. But this is designed to safeguard the world's agriculture against catastrophe. Be it nuclear war, asteroid strikes, or climate change. Deep embedded uh, in the earth, in this vault, the seeds of plants are being kept. And who knows? If such a calamity occurs, maybe they will be protected. But, says Jeremiah, there is nothing, there is no doomsday vault that can protect when the Lord's judgment comes in full force upon a nation. 
It will leave the earth formless, verse 23, and the heavens darkened. The mountains quaking, verse 24. The people and animals fleeing, verse 25. The land fruitless, verse 26. And the towns in ruins. It is utter devastation. At the hands of Babylon, but under the direction of the Lord himself. Now, it's heavy stuff. I wonder if we ever think of God in this kind of way. As a God of, of justice, of, of judgment upon sin. C.S. Lewis once said this. What we want as human beings, what we want, in fact, is not so much a father in heaven as a grandfather in heaven. A senile benevolence who, as they say, like to see young people enjoying themselves, and whose plan for the universe was simply that it might be truly said at the end of the day, a good time was had by all. Friends, that might be the God of our imagination, but it is not the God of the Bible. He does want our rejoicing, as we'll see. But he will not accept our rebellion. And this is clear not only in the Old Testament, in case you're sitting thinking, well, this is just ancient time stuff, but it's also clear in the New Testament. Paul the Apostle, in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, speaks of temporal judgment. In the here and now, the wrath of God, he says, is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men. And yet, it is not the disastrous effects of this temporal judgment. For example, the effects of promiscuity today in abortions, sexually transmitted diseases, divorce. It's not these things that we should be most worried about. Because again, in the New Testament, from the lips of Jesus himself, we also read about eternal judgment. It was Jesus who said, not a hot under the collar prophet, he said this, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. Fear him who after killing the body has the power to throw you into hell. And if we say, as many do today, well, I simply cannot accept this medieval teaching, then know this, that Scripture promise we would say that. The Apostle Peter, writing in his second epistle, said, You must understand that in the last days, that's our times, scoffers will come saying, scoffing and following their evil desires, they will say, where is this coming he promised? But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, by that same word, says Peter, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But if you accept this reality on the basis of God's word, whether from the prophets or from Peter or Paul or Jesus himself, then how should you respond to it? 
How, how are we to react to this emotionally? Well, the Lord's invitation comes in the text to lament. Verse 8, chapter 4. So put on sackcloth, lament and wail. And Jeremiah, in his bewilderment, takes up this call and he weeps. We're going to find him throughout this letter, a lot of the time, weeping. He's called the weeping prophet. And his lament involves internal anguish. Verse 18, this is Jeremiah speaking now. Oh, my anguish, my anguish, I ride in pain. Oh, the agony of my heart, my heart pounds within me. You see, this is heart palpitations that Jeremiah has. It is a physical, inward, painful reaction as he witnesses something terrible. And the judgment of God is terrible. And this inward agony expresses itself outwardly in outward cries. I cannot keep silent, verse 19, he says. And in these verses around, he expresses externally the deep concerns of his heart, the deep emotions to God and to anyone else who might listen. Now, this is something of a dying art today, is it not? It's what the Bible calls lamenting or lamentations. There's a whole book in the Old Testament that is all laments. And I wonder how good we are at this. Philip Ryken, in his commentary on Jeremiah, asked this. Where are the Jeremiahs of the evangelical church? Where are the men and women who have such awe for the justice of God, such love for the church of Christ, and such pity for the lost souls of the world that they weep over the sins of the nation? See, maybe this is one of the reasons why we need, why we need hard times to come upon us. Because we're so cool about everything. Complacent, maybe. Where are the prayers like William Booth? William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army. Remember a story I read in his biography. He stayed up all night one night with a wet towel over his head, sweating and praying. And his son got up in the middle of the night, realized his father wasn't in bed, said, Dad, what are you doing? And William Booth said, Son, the sins. What will the people do with their sins? Where does that lament in our praying? And where do the preachers, as I speak to myself as much as anyone else, who frequently and genuinely shed tears, or at least express some deep feeling about what is at stake when they preach. And when people walk out the door and on God, yet again. Where are the George Whitfields of whom it was said he never preached without tears? Never. While teachers of preaching everywhere are telling their students to lighten up, tell jokes and be funny. And where are the writers who by letter or by book or by email or tract share the gospel with a gravity of heart 
Any Richard Baxters here? Of whom it was said that when he wrote, he dipped his pen in tears? Maybe we've lost much of that in the evangelical church today. Jeremiah was a weeping prophet. Are we a weeping people? Now, don't get me wrong here. Just to clarify, I'm not saying that we should constantly have our hankies out all the time. Or that we have to express our emotions in the same way. Because we are different in our emotional makeup. And there is, of course, pride of place in the church for joy. Indeed, that is the heart of what worship is. In the Psalms it says, rejoice in the Lord. If we're not rejoicing in the Lord, we're not worshipping. And I think there are many times where we do that, even this morning. Uh, Last Sunday night, I was saying to Rodney, leading the service, it was easy to preach. Because the worship was so engaged, the joy was so full. And I think we're good at that sometimes. But are we good at this at all? Lamenting. Brothers and sisters, could we not put a day in our diary or a half day to get before the Lord with our Edinburgh evening news in the one hand and our Bibles in the other and pray, Lord, break my heart for this city so that I can really pray, so that I evangelize out of impulse, not just because it's my duty. This was Jeremiah's first response. But notice the second response too. If chapter 4 sees Jeremiah lamenting over a bad city, then chapter 5 sees him looking for a good man. And this arises in response to an accusation that Jeremiah makes against God. In his grief and in his confusion, he exclaims in verse 10, Ah, sovereign Lord, how completely have you deceived this people and Jerusalem by saying you will have peace when the sword is at their throats. Uh, He's accusing God that this impending judgment is somehow contrary to God's earlier promises and earlier claims. That he somehow pulled the wool over the people's eyes. Now, we've seen in the past few weeks that the Lord has done no such thing. That he has not guaranteed peace. He has only promised forgiveness on the basis of the condition of repentance. Which hasn't been forthcoming. And it may well be, as some have suggested, that Jeremiah has been listening a little too much to the false prophets. Those who, according to chapter 5, verse 14 Dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious, who say, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Don't worry about God's judgment, they said. He's never going to judge us. Peaceful times are ahead. And maybe Jeremiah has been taken in by these false promises of assurance. But whatever the case, there is a question of integrity that Jeremiah is raising against God. A question that you may have today, this morning, about God and his justice. We may with some resignation acknowledge the coming judgment of God, but it doesn't mean we think it's fair. And so while in our heads we know judgment is coming, in our hearts 
we're really thinking, is this right? Is God righteous in his judgments? And it's in response to that question that the Lord sends out Jeremiah. I love this. He sends him out on an assignment. Chapter 5, verse 1. Go up and down the streets of Jerusalem. Look around and consider. Search through her squares. If you can find but one person who deals honestly and seeks the truth, I will forgive this city. What a promise. Just one person who can stand without fault before a holy God and not be swept away. I'm sure Jeremiah set off rather excitedly why this will be a breeze. One person who would fit the bill. Uh, He'll be home in five minutes, put his feet up. Have saved the whole nation. And remember, this is much easier than, say, Abraham's task. Remember in Genesis, as he pleads over Sodom and Gomorrah, he bargains God down from 50 to 20, eventually to 10, just 10 people. If he could find ten, the city would be saved. No, this isn't ten. This isn't five. It's not even two. And so he quickly gets to work. He begins by looking among the poor in verse 4. Why did he begin there? Well, evidently he thought that those that were in worse conditions would be more likely in their desperate state to rely on God. And indeed, as he goes among them, he soon finds them using the Lord's name. They're they're swearing, they're making promises, oaths on the Lord's name all the time. And they seem quite religious. But as Jeremiah watches them and as he examines them and as he begins to see some of their motives, he realizes this is just a sham. Verse 2, although they say, as surely as the Lord lives, still they are swearing falsely. And according to verse 3, they actually deny God's truth and they refuse God's correction. Well, it's not late in the day, so Jeremiah uh, goes to plan B. He thinks, maybe I'm in the wrong place. Maybe this has been the wrong logic. Uh, After all, you know, the poor are not so well educated. Maybe they don't know the law of God. Maybe no one sat them down and instructed them in it. What I need to do is look among the educated people and the wealthy people who were also the leaders in the land. For surely, he says, they will know the way of the Lord. But he was surely wrong. Verse 5, but with one accord, they too had broken off the bonds, the yoke, and torn off the bonds. They had rejected the law of God, the yoke. And despise God's authority over them. And I think the point is this. That it doesn't matter where Jeremiah looks. The rich or the poor. The uneducated or the educated. The churchgoers or the non-church. Society in its totality has rejected God. There's no love for God in this nation. We've seen this in previous weeks. It comes up again in these chapters. There's spiritual adultery. The house of Israel and the house of Judah, that's everybody within it, have been utterly unfaithful to me, declares the Lord. 
And it's very interesting, I find this extremely insightful. How would we know if a nation is unfaithful to God, is committing spiritual adultery? Fascinatingly, he says, because it leads to physical adultery in the land. Those in verse 7 of chapter 5, who have forsaken me and sworn by gods that are not gods, are in verse 8, well-fed, lusty stallions, each neighing for another man's wife. Ever made that connection between increasing godlessness and spiritual adultery and increased sexual promiscuity? Casual relationships with members of the opposite sex betray a casual relationship with God. There's no love for God. There's no fear of God. Look at verse 12. They have lied about the Lord, says Jeremiah. They said, he will do nothing. No harm will come to us. We will never see sword and famine. The prophets are but wind and the the word is not in them. And all the while the Lord asks this people, and he asks our nation, should you not fear me? Declares the Lord, should you not tremble in my presence? Yet in Jeremiah's society, and in ours, people are underwhelmed by the greatness of God. One and all. And therefore, it is frightening to say, but it is justified, that one and all, Israel, are under God's judgment. And we too. The human race. That if Jeremiah walked our streets today, if he walked the streets of Edinburgh or Glasgow or London, he would still be at a loss to find one good man, one good woman in the sight of God. Paul, in his magnificent argument in Romans, begins by laying out the case against the human race. And as he comes to his conclusion, he's marshaled the evidence Against Jew and against non-Jew. And then he says in Romans 3 verse 10. There is, listen to all the no ones here. No one righteous. Not even one. There is no one who understands. No one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good. Not even one. One, two, three, four, five times I read it. No one is emphasized. Meaning that whoever you are this morning, and I say this with respect, as a fellow sinner, you are a sinner before a holy God. But here's the good news. When you grasp that, it's something of a breakthrough moment, actually. Because you finally understand that before God, you are utterly helpless. The Bible calls it by different words, lost in your sins. Dead in your sins. You say, why is that good? Why is that good? Doesn't sound good. It's good because all you can then do is fall back upon the mercy of God. You have nowhere else to turn. Nothing else you can do. And if there is no mercy left in these passages, in the rest of the Bible, we're all goners. 
But there's a silver lining even in this text. And there's a lot of judgment in this text, but there's mercy in here too. First in chapter 4, verse 27. The whole land will be ruined, though I will not destroy it completely. Ruined, but not destroyed. Verse 10 of chapter 5. There's this picture of of a vineyard. Israel's like a vineyard. And the Lord says, go through her vineyards and ravage them. But do not destroy them completely. And verse 18 of chapter 5, following the worst description of judgment, I think, in these chapters we read this, Yet even in those days, declares the Lord, I will not destroy you completely. See, here's the principle. We sang it a number of times in different songs. That in God's anger, he remembers mercy. While many are swept away in their own willful rebellion and sin, God graciously and mercifully snatches some from the fire. That's why Paul could say in Romans that mercy triumphs over judgment. And that's why, if you're not a believer this morning, that's why God brought you here. Don't go away with the wrong idea. You didn't come here to hear a message primarily about judgment. But God's mercy in light of his judgment. It's the only way that his mercy makes sense. He saves us from his own wrath through his precious son and his blood shed for us. See, going back to Romans again. It's why Paul, for three chapters, relentlessly knocks away the pillars of our own merit and self-standing. So that he can say this in Romans 3.21. But now, a righteousness from God, apart from the law, the rules which you can't keep, to which the law and the prophets testify, this righteousness comes from God through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. So there's another all. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but all who believe are saved. There's no difference. All have sinned, fall short of the glory of God, and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. So let me tell you this morning that there is judgment from God, but in the face of it, grace and mercy is your only way out. Jesus has done it all. He's the only hope for you. He's the only hope for our city. That's why we go out and preach Christ, not a set of rules for people to live by. We've broken the rules. We need the one who kept the standards and died in our place so that we could be saved. And so in conclusion, I hope... Christians, that we'll take this message out. That in God's judgment there is mercy. And I hope that if you're not a believer this morning, and there are some of you here, I know, that you'll take this to heart. Uh, If I had more time, I I would have given you a third point and the whole of chapter 6. But we're running out of time this morning. But it would have been this, lingering at the crossroads. 
Because the Lord, in chapter 6, that little verse that we read, he brings his unfaithful people to a final decision point, the crossroads. He says, stand at the crossroads and look, ask for the ancient past, ask where the good way is and walk in it. And you will find rest for your souls. What a promise. What an opportunity to one and all this morning for our nation as well. But you said, verse 16, we will not walk in it. That's enough to make a righteous man weep. And many years after Jeremiah, the Lord Jesus, the man who was God, stood overlooking the city of Jerusalem. And you remember the story, perhaps, as he contemplated the destruction of Jerusalem Many lost people in it. He wept over it. Jesus wept. God wept. And every day that we turn from God and our nation turns its back on God, I believe he weeps. Jesus weeps over that. But the wonderful thing is this. Unlike Jeremiah, Jesus didn't just weep about it. He did something about it. And a week later, just outside the walls of that city, he gave up his life on the cross so that God's righteous judgment might be turned away. And if you, if you trust him this morning, Jesus will know joy and you will be able to sing the hymn that we're going to finish with today. Charles Wesley's wonderful hymn, And Can It Be, finishes with a line like this. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Let's pray.